From the campus of Harvard Medical School, this is Think Research, a podcast devoted to the stories behind clinical research. I'm Abby. And I'm Brendan, and we're your hosts. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. And by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. When considering our medical care, the goal is to keep costs down while still receiving the best care possible. But as consumers, how are we to judge the quality of our treatments or procedures we receive? For years in the healthcare system, doctors have been paid based on the quantity of their services, not always the quality. With drug therapies, surgeries, and more, there are always risks and side effects. These considerations lower the value of treatment if the pros do not outweigh the cons. Currently, Dr. Ankur Pandya is taking a closer look at applying cost effectiveness and incentivize pay to increase our quality of care while lowering costs. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Pandya. Great to have you with us again. Cost effectiveness is very important to our healthcare system and the quality of treatment patients receive. You recently published a viewpoint in JAMA about how to improve the definition of value in healthcare using cost effectiveness. Can you tell us about this? Yeah. So it starts with this big problem we've had in health policy for a long time, which is how do we get the incentives right for doctors and hospitals, basically anyone providing care in the healthcare system? How do we incentivize the right things to do? Because um, if you think about like a fee-for-service model, in that model, doctors, hospitals, providers, the more stuff they do, the more they get paid. And so very basic economic incentives there are, let's do more stuff. Let's do more procedures, more tests, more drugs, longer hospital stays, we get paid more. That's the incentive. Um, and that caused a lot of cost and quality problems. Um, so then about 10 years ago, there's kind of the, the launch of this wave towards value. So the idea was, instead of incentivizing the amount of services that are performed, let's incentivize value. And everyone's like, yeah, this is great. This is what we need to do. We're going to incentivize value. We're going to make sure people providers uh, are incentivized, get paid more for doing high-value care. Maybe they're paid less for doing low-value care. And you saw different flavors of value-based policies kind of arising from this movement, like value-based insurance design or value-based purchasing or value-based pricing, like value-based everything. The challenge has been, um, what do we mean by value? And what's kind of emerged is that stakeholders have their own definitions of value, and sometimes these can be in conflict. What Mm -hmm. a patient group might consider high value might not be the same. What a hospital thinks is high value from what an insurer thinks is high value from what the government might think is high value. So um, this kind of um, lack of a consistent, usable definition uh, has been a challenge. So that's kind of how I started out um, uh, my viewpoint articles by kind of setting the scene uh, with the problem around defining value. And then my my uh, job is to use cost-effectiveness analysis. So I teach uh, the introductory cost-effectiveness course here at the School of Public Health. Most of my research is based on cost-effectiveness analysis. Um, primarily, like my bread and butter is 
producing cost-effectiveness research on a single intervention. So like, is X cost-effective? Mm-hmm. Um, is it worth the money? And I'll kind of explain what that means in a second. Um, but uh, when I was writing this viewpoint, I was kind of taking a step back and kind of thinking about, um, you know, cost-effectiveness analysis is this mathematical approach that can be used to quantitatively define value. And so maybe our tools can help this kind of value space and these broader health policy questions that are kind of um, being debated and, and uh, kind of confused. Um, and so, so what is cost-effectiveness analysis? Why can it help? Um, cost-effectiveness analysis is basically um, a set of mathematical rules that uh, help us quantify the bang per buck for any healthcare service. So any drug, procedure, screening policy, um, basically anything you can do in healthcare um, will have some costs associated with it. So there's the cost of doing that thing. Um, there's also gonna be some cost offsets potentially. So if it's like a drug that prevents heart disease and it prevents a heart attack, uh, in the math of cost effectiveness, you get to count that heart attack averted in the as cost savings in the numerator, so to speak, of a cost effectiveness ratio and the cost part. So it's like net costs. And then there's the effectiveness part. So there's the um, health gains that come from the intervention um, minus the side effects or bad things that might come. And so you have these net costs and you have these net health effects. And the cost effectiveness math basically says, given those two elements, um, especially when costs are increasing and health is increasing, um, is it worth it? Is the intervention or the increased costs, let's say if the costs end up being net positive, worth the um, health gains that are also net positive? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how the math can help. Because mm-hmm. what we showed in the viewpoint also is we took a look at, um, we, we, took a, we started with low value care and we took a look at like the current efforts to define um, and measure low value care. And what we noticed was, um, these efforts in the U.S. have primarily looked at only the effectiveness side. So they'd only look at the health outcomes and say, do the health gains outweigh the side effects or the drawback, health drawbacks? And um, the current approach is to look at low-value care. Um, one of the big examples is the Choosing Wisely campaign. This was a, a campaign um, that started in 2012. Um, it was really a huge catalyst um, I don't know, pun intended, mm, <laughs> uh, to, um, to for this like low value movement. And basically the idea there for choosing wisely is uh, different physician specialty groups would recommend five to 10 services that their physicians might do uh, to say, hey, these are low value, air quotes, low value services. Let's not do them because they're not helping patients, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we looked at that list. We looked at the 435 services provide, that were given by these specialty groups, and we found that only 2% of them cited a cost-effectiveness analysis. Mm. Um, and so they kind of confirmed our prior that um, right now the conversations on low-value care are really, uh, so Atul Gawande had this um, essay in The New Yorker um, where he was kind of referring to some of these kinds of studies, and uh, he said, you know, these it's not low-value care that these groups are looking at, it's no-value care. Like, these things are harmful, these services. Um, there's no reason to do them. Um, and so low-value care, kind of the way I see it, um, is health services that do improve health. So their, their health effects are positive. The gains from health outweigh the side effects, but they also cost a lot of money. And it's that kind of ratio between the costs and the health effects um, that cost-effectiveness can help us quantify. Like, those are the services that are low value as opposed to no value. So it involves both dimensions, the cost mm-hmm. dimension 
and the effectiveness dimension. So I wrote this viewpoint saying, um, you know, if we use cost effectiveness to define low value care, we'd have a quantitative systematic definition um, that considers length of life, quality of life, and costs. It's not everything, but three big things. Um, and we could turn it into a number. You could have a spectrum. You could have mm. a very low value service as quantified by the ratio versus a kind of low value. Maybe it's an intermediate value. You know, you get mm. some sense of um, magnitude um, when you when you put numbers to it. Um, mm. And so that was the um, that was the kind of solution I offered in the viewpoint. We start with this problem around value, kind of offer this quantitative solution. Um, and then there are different ways then that, um, let's say, um, you can uh, use these tools when developing health policies. Mm. You talked about the definition of value and the different factors you think about when you are looking at value. Could you tell us what some of the low and high value services or treatments are? Yeah. In fact, let me, um, let me try something. Let me um, give you a analogy uh, for something that's not related to health, but we can all think about, and then and then try to cross over into a health example to, to hopefully make it stick. So um, like the choice of like what smartphone we choose to buy or have um, can kind of also be viewed as this like value bang for buck scenario or like a cost quality trade-off, uh, so to speak. So imagine like you walk into the phone store and like the cheapest, lowest quality phone you can get is like a flip phone. Okay, it works, but it's very low cost. Um, but maybe you want to upgrade. Like, and on the other end of the store, there's like the version 12 smartphone, the newest <laughs> thing that talks to you and like does all this stuff. Very high quality, um, high effectiveness, you know, you could say, but also really high cost. I mean, that phone costs like $2,000 or something. Mm -hmm. The flip phone's only like 50 bucks. So that just if those are your only two options, you can see there's like a delta effectiveness. There's an incremental gain in effectiveness and there's an incremental cost. Um, but those probably aren't the only two options. There's probably also the version 10 and the version 8 mm -hmm. and the version 4. And you could kind of construct this like, uh, we would call it the efficient frontier, but you get, it's like this like curve and um, it would have this like, uh, oh gosh, we call it concave shape, but it's kind of like this curved shape where like the slope mm -hmm. is getting flatter and flatter on the kind of, um, I guess it would be effectiveness versus cost. And you, you can imagine like that maybe the upgrade from the version 10 to the version 12 will give you a little bit improvement in effectiveness, but will cost like $2,000 or something. And it's like, mm -hmm. is that bang for buck worth it? Maybe I choose based on my budget and preferences to have the version 10 or the version four. Or, you know, if I'm very, if I don't care about phones that much and I don't have a lot of money to spend, I go with the flip phone. On the mm -hmm. opposite side, I'm very rich. I don't care. I just want the most expensive <laughs> thing. I'm going to go with the version 12. So we're, we make this these choices all the time. And so that's the kind of hopefully very accessible um, scenario. Let me cross over now into health. Um, mm -hmm. There's a patient who comes in with, um, you know, they're maybe like call them intermediate risk for uh, heart disease. They, they might have some symptoms, and we want to know if there's some treatable ischemia. I'm going to give you a secret. I'm not a cardiologist. I work with them. <laughs> I'm the PhD. I work with them. So if I get some of the technical terms a little okay. off, yeah, you can, you can Luckily, edit that. Luckily, none keep... of us are cardiologists either. Okay. So this is a safe space for this example. But like, okay, so this, this patient comes in. Um, they, they, are, um, they might have treatable ischemia, um, but we don't know. So there are different, like diagnosis strategies we could use. The most expensive and intensive is like the cath. Like we go in, it's the most expensive, but we know for sure whether or not it's in there. 
Um, that's kind of like the version 12 phone. <laughs> um, the flip phone option is just kind of like wait and see. Let's just see if they develop symptoms. We'll just kind of do, you know, lowest cost, but perhaps lowest effectiveness because we don't know what's going on. And then there are some intermediate options in between, like cardiac MR, cardiac CT, spec. Mm-hmm. These are all, as I understand it, different tests <laughs> that give us some information about what's going on, but they're not as intensive and costly as that cath procedure. So you can construct mm-hmm. this kind of curve. And then you get these trade-offs between effectiveness, how much health are we getting? And in this case, it's derived from the information we get about what's going on in the patient's heart um, versus the costs. And um, if we didn't care about costs, right, if we just wanted to look at effectiveness, we'd cath everyone, we'd get the most information. But these kind of, I'm working with um, some uh, imagers uh, at the Brigham um, who specialize in cardiac MR. Basically, you could get a lot of that information for a lot less cost using MR instead of cath. And so the value idea here is maybe that's where the bang for best bang for buck is. If we start mm. thinking about that cost dimension, um, it could be that um, the highest value option is not necessarily the most effective. How can physicians and hospitals become more open to adjusting the services they recommend to become more cost effective? It's a great question. Um, In my view, cost-effectiveness analysis is most useful when thinking about societal-level decision-making, so broad health policies. Um, And that kind of then feeds into how I think um, health policy responses um, can be shaped uh, to address low-value care or or incentivize high-value care um, in this framework. So, for example... Let's say there is a, oh gosh, it's, it's a tired example, but let's say there's a new drug. I hate picking on drugs because everyone does it, but it's probably the easiest to think about. So there's this new drug, comes out, um, and it is effective. That's good compared to like the current options, but it is very high priced. And if you do the cost effectiveness math, the cost effectiveness ratio is kind of very high, meaning it's bang for buck is poor. This is, this would be, I would call it a low value service in my research. So what, what, what can we do about this expensive but effective drug? I think there are two options. First, um, we can um, try to lower the price, we being, let's say, healthcare payers, um, trying to lower the price such that the cost-effectiveness combination now goes from low value to high value because we've helped reduce some of the cost to the system by negotiating for a lower price. And there are various tools that payers can use to try to do this. I mean, some is just straight negotiation. Others are maybe incentives. They could they could put the drug in like a, threaten to put the drug in a tier with very high copays. So then the manufacturer wouldn't want that because less people would use it. And so there are ways to kind of negotiate the price down to convert a low value service to a high value service by just by the price. Um, and Previous research has shown that, like, why does the U.S. spend so much on healthcare? Um, there's this article called, like, it's the prices, stupid. Like, <laughs> that's, it's our prices that are so high. So, so, so then my question is, well, which prices? Like, is it all prices or are some prices worse than others? And so using cost-effectiveness analysis to define value could say, hey, it's these prices that we should really worry about and try to lower, um, especially because they're for health-improving services. We would like to use these. They would help patients. It's just that they cost too much. So that's one mechanism. And then the other is, well, if we can't change the price, then these are just more services to flag and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't do these so much, kind of like we do for no-value care. So like choosing wisely campaign, other um, 
groups and movements towards um, kind of the less is more movement. If you've heard mm-hmm. about that, you know, they're th- trying to say, um, you know, we, we don't have to do everything in healthcare. There's some stuff we shouldn't do. And um, if we are willing to, we can include low value services using this cost effectiveness definition um, in that space and say, um, you know, these are uh, low value and then a clinical guideline or maybe a set of quality measures used by hospitals or payers um, or physicians um, can then um, kind of include these low-value services as part of their as part of their measures for quality or appropriateness. Um, and these are ways to essentially nudge physicians, hospitals, and maybe even patients into towards high-value care mm-hmm. and away from low-value care. There's this like, concept called like pay for performance, mm-hmm. where if doctors get better outcomes, we'll pay them more. Or you can even do this on patients, like. Um, one of the examples we had was like if patients control their cholesterol if they're at high risk for heart disease and they do a better job of controlling their cholesterol they would actually get paid by the health you know, uh, pay for performance um, so some of the research I've done uh, lately uh, is around are these pay for performance schemes cost effective so viewing the policy as the intervention these schemes take money to implement and the incentives paid out are costs but they change behavior when they work. And so there's some health gains that we get from them. So are these schemes cost-effective? And we found mixed results um, both in the U.S. and the U.K. And I can get into the details of that. Um, sure. Yeah. What were the results you found? Uh, we found that um, so there was this randomized control trial in the U.S. Um, it looked at incentives on cholesterol control. So the patients in these trials all were at high risk for heart disease and they did not have their cholesterol controlled to optimal levels. So we would like, we, society, and probably the patients as well, would like to get their cholesterol down. So this trial tried different ways of using financial incentives to achieve this goal. Uh, One idea, one arm in the trial was, let's pay the patients. A patient can earn up to $1,200 on expectation if they control their cholesterol over the course of one year. Another arm was paying physicians. And physicians could make up to $1,200 if they can get their patients to control their cholesterol. And there was another arm called the shared incentive strategy, which halved the incentives for each, physicians and patients, but tried them in combination. And it turned out in the randomized control trial, that shared incentives arm had a clinically significant, um, statistically significant um, reduction in LDL bad cholesterol compared to the control arm. Interestingly, the patient incentives only and the physician incentives only did not have statistically significant reductions in LDL cholesterol. So just from the trial, they, we, you know, thought um, maybe there's something about these shared incentives, the combination effect of incentivizing both the provider and the patient that can help lower these um, cholesterol, bad cholesterol levels. So then we stepped in and we said, okay. Shared incentive strategy seems to have some effect. Is it worth the cost it takes to implement this program? Mm-hmm. This this concept, this intervention, is a health service itself. It's it has added costs to administer this program. The incentive costs could be viewed as costs from the payer going out, um, but it has some effects. The lower the reductions in LDL cholesterol. So we used simulation modeling, which is a common quantitative uh, uh, tool that cost-effectiveness researchers employ to then say, are the health gains worth the cost? And we found that 
It does provide intermediate value, um, so the cost-effectiveness ratio. Um, I wouldn't call it exceedingly high value, but I wouldn't call it low value e either. It's kind of in the middle space. Um, and and it, that cost-effectiveness result really depends on how long the cholesterol benefits last. So the trial is a one-year intervention. These incentives last for one year, and then they're turned off. And in the trial, they followed these patients for another three months, so out to 15 months from baseline. And they found that the reductions persisted for those three months. If you assume the reductions slowly degrade out to year 10, which is what we assumed in our so-called base case analysis or like best guess, slowly degrade to year 10, and by year 10, then they're zero in kind of this linear fashion, then that's when you get this kind of intermediate value result. If the cholesterol reductions persist forever, so you use this intervention to change behavior and then those behaviors stick with people, even though you're not paying them anymore, then it's a very high value intervention. But if the effects degrade by two years and so they go to zero by two years, then it's a low value. So like we should put our money elsewhere based on cost effectiveness principles. Um, so we use this modeling and this kind of like cost effectiveness analysis to help unpack the story a little bit and mm -hmm. say, um, here's how long it really needs to last. Um, and so the follow-up steps would then be, let's say, a five-year um, evaluation. Try this out, mm -hmm. like in Medicare or some big health plan for five years, see if it works. Uh, and if the reductions persist, great, that's cost-effective. Let's do it. Let's scale it up. And if not, we would say it's not cost-effective. It would mm -hmm. fall in the low-value space. Let's put our money elsewhere. Mm. What do you hope your research accomplishes? This is a great question <laughs> because, as you might imagine, and perhaps justifiably based on perspective, <laughs> there, are, there is some pushback to the idea of calling health-improving services low value. Patients could benefit, will benefit, from some of these so-called mm -hmm. low-value services. It's just not worth the money. So it sounds a little cold-hearted to deny these services um, if we can't get the price down. Um, to patients who could benefit. Mm -hmm. um, and you will hear people, critics of this approach say, um, you know, uh, the point of healthcare is not to save money. There's this one person who says, uh, I didn't go to medical school to lower costs. Fair enough, <laughs> okay. So my counter would be, every dollar spent in the healthcare system could have been spent on something else inside the healthcare system or outside the healthcare system. So let's take a step back. Um, in the US, one out of every $6 in the entire economy is spent on healthcare. If you just look at the money we spend on healthcare, it would be equivalent to the GDP, total GDP of like the fifth largest country in the world. Basically, pretty close to the entire GDP of Germany's entire economy would be how much we spend just on healthcare. In the US, about half the money we spend on healthcare comes from the public sector, so Medicare, Medicaid, the VA, and the other half comes from private sector, let's say private insurance, employer-based insurance. Um, in the public sector, we've seen in Massachusetts, when we rolled out our um, health reform, uh, what we saw is that the state's started to spend a lot more on healthcare, and that's good. People got access, and that's, you know, from health policy, we view that that's a good thing. But if you look at the budget, 
like what happened after the state budget, after health reform was enacted in Massachusetts, spending went down on education, mental health, social services by almost the amount that it went up in healthcare. We're talking mm. a lot of money. Um, and so there's an opportunity cost on a state budget. We're spending less on education because we're paying so much for healthcare. And a lot of this healthcare is low value, flat of the curve medicine. So some of the like big picture motivation here is we could take the money out of the low value stuff and put it into education, clean water, social services, just give the money back to people in the form of lower taxes. Um, that's the public side. On the private mm -hmm. side, we've seen uh, some, uh, let's call it slow but steady wage growth in the U.S. Like people's wages are going up slowly right over the past 10, 15 years. Mm -hmm. And then you look at um, healthcare premiums that people are paying into for their private health camps, way outpacing the growth mm -hmm. in, in wages. So our take-home dollars are less because we're spending so much on healthcare, which is showing up in our premiums. If we could not spend so much money on healthcare, particularly low value care, we would see more money coming back to us in the form of wages on the private side. Mm. So every dollar we spend on healthcare has an opportunity cost. And even within the healthcare system, there are a lot of high value services, cost effective services that we are not implementing to full extent. Maternal care for low-income mothers, uh, prenatal care. Um, our outcomes are not great here. We should really be putting more money into that issue and other issues that are underspent. Um, where's that money going to come from? You know, well, how about low-value care? It's right in the healthcare system. So, like, there's some really big-picture fundamental motivations for why I think it is really important to connect the cost of healthcare to their effects. Um, because if we only look at the effectiveness side, we spend a lot of money on health services that yes, improve health, but are costing us in different ways, societal level. So that's, I mean, I think that's kind of fun. And it's maybe it's, I don't know if that's dark or, or just, uh, or important, I hope important. Um, so that's what we're trying to do with this work is we're trying to say, okay, well, what are the high value things we want to incentivize? And what are the low value things that we want to either get the the price down so we save money in the healthcare system or say hey we're, we're, we're not willing to pay for this because that money could go somewhere else mm. thank you for joining us dr pandya it's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you thanks been a lot of fun Next time on Think Research. We often apply a standard in healthcare that we don't do in other sectors, which is this kind of wish that we're going to somehow save money overall by improving access. And usually that's not the case. We usually spend more, but we are getting more. People are getting you know, better access, better financial protection, uh, better health, and, and those are investments that, that I think are often worth making. Dr. Ben Summers revisits his research on Medicaid and the Affordable Care Act. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on iTunes and help us spread the word about the amazing research taking place across the Harvard community. To learn more about the guests on this episode, visit our website, catalyst.harvard.edu slash thinkresearch. Thank you.